Imagine a burning home, flames dancing out of every window. A man walking by hears the panic scream from a child coming from inside. Without much of a thought for his own safety, he runs in the home to rescue the youngster. The question is why, evolutionarily speaking, would he risk his own life to save that of a stranger? One man thought he had answered this question and didn't like what he learned, so he risked everything to prove himself wrong. Today I have the story of George Price on the 184th episode of Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. You know, this is probably the best August weather we've had here in the Midwest in years. It's actually a bit chilly in the morning. Can you imagine that chilly in August? Strange, but it still gets nice and warm as soon as the sun rises. Today's story is about a bizarre man named George Price. I first heard of Price on an episode of Dark Matters, Twisted But True, in a segment called Killed by Kindness. Now, I was never a fan of Dark Matters because of their tendency to err on the side of the supernatural or mysterious. Anyway, since then, I've always thought about doing a story on Price. In fact, I think I actually started it once or twice in the past. The thing is, all my research kept coming back to one man, award-winning writer and historian of science, Oren Harmon. I couldn't escape him. Whenever I thought I found something new about Price, it always had an interview with Harmon. He wrote a book on Price called The Price of Autism, George Price and the Search for the Origins of Kindness. He's done a TED Talk and many other talks about Price. So what I'm saying is that today's episode should be totally credited to the work of Oren Harmon, and I hope he doesn't mind. There are a few other sources and whatnot, but Harmon was responsible for probably 90 to 95% of today's story. So let's get into it. My coffee is hot, and I'm ready to talk about a man who became obsessed with finding the true nature of kindness. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. He turned out to be an unemployed American um, who had no tra- formal training in biology at all. Um, who had been working in computers, I think, um, and had come to live in England to do theoretical biology because that's what he wanted to do, and he decided that he could live longer in England on his savings than he could in America. Um, He was living all by himself in this pad in Charlotte Street. Um, And I could go on talking about George Farras because he's a very strange character. Ever since Charles Darwin published On the Origins of Species in 1859, a question has plagued biologists. Why do people and animals do unselfish things? If the whole idea of evolution is to pass on one's genes to the next generation, then sacrificing yourself to help another seems illogical. 
when a young soldier jumps on a hand grenade to save the other troops, from a purely biological evolutionary standpoint, it seems to go against survival of the fittest. After all, he's given up the right to pass along his genes in order to help others pass along theirs. You might say that we as humans can think and reason and have culture and religion and moral codes to live by, that there's more to it than biology. But altruism is not just a human trait. It appears in the wild. Like when a monkey puts himself in danger by raising the alarm when a predator is approaching the group, or the bee will sting, killing itself to protect the hive. Or a gazelle who, when seeing a vicious and hungry lion approaching, will jump up above the grass to get the lion's attention, therefore letting the rest of the herd escape, sacrificing him or herself. Believe it or not, this question has puzzled philosophers and scientists for centuries, and it's a complicated issue. There's a good article in Psychology Today that explains this better than I could, and I'll have a link to it in today's show notes. The thing is, today's story is not about the question of altruism, but the idea of obsession. Imagine a man being so obsessed with this question that he destroys his own life. His name was George Price, a man with a brilliant mind whose quest to discover the answers of kindness brought him to an unfortunate and sad end. George R. Price was born in New York State on October 6, 1922, to a father who was a lighting expert in the New York Theater District in the 1910s and 20s. It was in the theater around 1917 that his father met his mother, who was a very unsuccessful actress. George was her second child, as he had an older brother named Edison. His father died when he was four, so the family, a mother with two young boys, as you might expect, had a tough time making it through the Great Depression. To make ends meet, George's mom would send the older brother off to a farm in upstate New York so she could rent out his room for $7 a week. Edison Price would go on to be very successful as he invented track lighting. George is one of those who knew from an early age that he was special, destined for greatness. He was smart, very smart, chess club smart. His intellect drew him into science and math. He became an atheist at a very young age because he could find no rational argument for God's existence. He was obsessed with applying his brilliance to big problems. According to Oren Harmon, a man who has done extensive research into Price, he was a bit Forrest Gump and a bit Rain Man. In a class of 802 students, Price was second. When he was 17 years old, he interviewed at Harvard. The people who interviewed him wrote may go haywire, but will never be humdrum. This pretty much sums up George's life. He spent a year at Harvard before being kicked out, and then he went on to the University of Chicago. One of his first jobs was working on the Manhattan Project as a chemist looking for the characteristics of plutonium-235. That's where he met Julia Madigan. The two would get married in 1947, but it was a marriage filled with problems. One of the main problems was that Julia was a practicing Roman Catholic, very devout, and George, of course, an atheist. They were divorced in 1955, but they had two daughters, Anna Marie and Catherine. Apparently, George was never a very good father to the girls. I would guess that he was too focused on his work to be a present parent. Even after the divorce, however, he would stay in touch with the children, 
taking them to museums, concerts, and to the theater. Catherine said later that she had fond memories of long walks through the city together, his love of poetry and Shakespeare, and his insatiable intellectual curiosity. During this time, Price had many unconnected jobs, jumping from one field to another without any real career path. For a while, he was an instructor in chemistry at Harvard University and a consultant to Argonne National Laboratories. He worked at Bell Laboratories studying the chemistry of transistors and after a research associate in medicine at the University of Minnesota. In 1955 and 56, he published two papers in the Journal of Science criticizing the pseudoscientific claims of extrasensory perception. He would take a job, solve a problem, then disappear, only to wind up somewhere else to solve another problem. He failed in his attempt to write a book he was planning, titled No Easy Way About the United States' Cold War with the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. He quit saying that the world keeps changing faster than I could write about it, so the book was never finished. He was one of the inventors or the inventor of CAD, computer-aided design, but he never took credit for it or patented or anything like that. He just let IBM make millions off his work and never looked back. While working for IBM as a consultant on graphic data processing, he was treated for thyroid cancer. He asked an old friend to do the operation to remove a tumor in his left shoulder. While the tumor was removed successfully, a nerve in his right shoulder was damaged. It left him partially paralyzed. Price became very angry about what he called his friend's butchery, and from then on he was dependent on thyroid medication to replace the hormones his thyroid used to make. This sent Price into a major depression, believing at times that his life wasn't worth living. And this brings us to the point where our story really begins, and that's in the early 1960s. He had received a nice medical insurance payout from the operation, and he used that money to travel to the UK to begin a new life. He had already left his wife, but now he abandoned his two children, who were now 18 and 19 years old. In England, he was about to tackle a new problem, one that has been and still is debated. The question that has been around since Darwin, why are people nice to each other? Now, I've read that he got involved in altruism by thinking of a way to explain why humans lived in families, particularly what fatherhood was for, scientifically speaking. This may have had something to do with his own failed marriage. From this, he began to think about altruism, the act of kindness in humans. Why is this an issue? There has been many books written on the subject, and it's too complicated for me to attempt to explain here today. And uh, to be honest, I'm not sure I understand it fully myself, but basically it's a paradox. The evolution of altruism was impossible, yet clearly altruism had evolved. And if this was something that couldn't be resolved, the whole idea of natural selection might be in question. It's an issue that's still hotly debated today. Now, without any training in biology, he began reading any paper he could find in the library relating to altruism. During his research, he came across a name, the one of English evolutionary biologist William Donald Hamilton, who is widely recognized as one of the most significant evolutionary theorists of the 20th century. Bill Hamilton is considered the greatest Darwinist since Darwin. In March of 1967, Price wrote Hamilton and said, 
Hello, let me introduce myself. My name is George Price, and I have come to solve the problem of altruism. Bill Hamilton had no idea who George Price was, so he brought him back wishing him good luck and whatnot. Hamilton was on his way to Brazil to study social wasps. And when he returned six months later, Price left a paper on his desk. It is something we now call the Price Equation. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to understand the equation, but according to James Holland Jones from the Department of Anthropological Science of Stanford University, the Price Equation is a complete description of the evolutionary process. With it, we partition the change in the mean of a trait from one generation to the next into two quantities, the effect of transmission and the effect of selection. Got that? Anyway, Hamilton is blown away by what he sees, a short, beautiful equation, and realizes that this is a huge insight into the problem of altruism. Hamilton has his own similar equation called the Hamilton Rule, which explains how evolution can evolve, but only in terms of nepotism, genetic relatedness, that altruism exists between family members. You see, if a man is drowning in a pond, it serves no biological advantage for an unrelated person to rescue him. You would be putting your genes in danger, and biologically, it's your job to pass along your genes to the next generation. But if a family member, a relative who shares the same genes, saves the man, this would help pass along those genes to the next generation even more. In other words, it's not important who passes along the genes as long as they get passed along. The Price Equation... Hamilton realized, showed that altruism could evolve without nepotism, widening the scope of kindness in nature. Again, both the Hamilton rule and the Price equation are way more complicated, and you can find long explanations of each on the internet. But for the sake of the story, we just need to know that George's equation was quite groundbreaking. Hamilton would write Price a month later and say, I am enchanted with your formula. I really have a clear picture of the selection process as a result. In its general form, I can see how we might use your formula to investigate group selection. During the time that Hamilton was in the jungle, Price brought the same equation to the genetics department at the University of London, one of the best and most respected genetic departments in the world. He showed his work to a professor and asked, Is this new? Now you have to imagine that this professor was being approached by a skinny bearded man with a high voice that had no credentials, held no academic position, and had no appointment. All he had was his equation. The professor took one look at the equation and within minutes gave Price the keys to his own office and an honorary professorship. But this had a very strange effect on George Price. He couldn't understand why he was given this great insight. I mean... All the great minds since Darwin had been trying to solve this problem, and he, George Price, without any training, was able to crack it, and that didn't make sense. From this he began to examine his life about all the strange coincidences that always seemed to happen, like he had dated four girls that all had the same first name, Anne, and the last four digits of his phone number were 2399, which to him, he thought, was the moment before midnight. It was things like these and others that got him thinking, and he began doing the math. Paul wrote to his brother in the autumn of 1970, 
I happened to notice one surprising coincidence in my life, and this started me searching back through my calendar books, letters, and other material, and noticing a long succession of other improbabilities until the improbability level became astronomical. He came up with the odds that all these coincidences to happen to him were 1 divided by 10 to the 30th, which is an enormous number. In Price's mind, he began to wonder why all these coincidences should happen to him, and he came up with the only explanation he thought was possible. It was the same logic that made him into an atheist as a kid that now drove him to the church. He became an evangelist Christian. It made sense, at least to George, because obviously he had been chosen by God to let the world know where compassion comes from. Award-winning writer and historian of science, Oren Harman, whose work much of today's story is based, said, George was a true rationalist. He was such a rationalist that rationalism had drove him to God and to the notion that he had been chosen to tell humanity a great truth. Price attempted to turn Hamilton, who was an extreme atheist, into a Christian, thinking Hamilton had the brains to find signs in the Bible that Price was looking for. Along with Hamilton, Price attempted to convert all his friends and family into Christians. And with his newfound belief in God, he began to feel guilty about his ex-wife and two daughters. He wrote a heartfelt letter to his family and asked his wife to come to England so they could be remarried, 20 years after their divorce. Julia actually did come to England, but the two, for whatever reason, never remarried. He read frantically all the religious texts he could. He claims to have discovered discrepancies in the Gospels, like he deduced that the days of the Holy Week had been 12 rather than the traditional 8, and the date of Christ's resurrection was entirely wrong. And while he got deeper and deeper into Christianity, he stopped taking his thyroid medication because if he could live without the medication, it would be a sure sign that God wanted him alive. The problem with that, however, is that without his medication, he would go into deep depressions. But now, with this knowledge, Price began to get troubled. You see, if kindness had been selected through evolution, then it's never pure. Altruism had selfish origins and therefore not done out of a pure heart. In his mind, there can never be true selfishness. Looking at his own work philosophically, he concluded that altruism is really always in one's self-interest. It doesn't matter if you're helping the gene or the group or the individual, altruism is always out of selfishness. And that thought horrified him and he wasn't going to accept it. He had to prove that one could be entirely selfless, that true kindness could exist, and he was out to prove his own equation wrong. This became an obsession. He was known to run through the corridors of the University College of London shouting that he had a hotline to Jesus. In October of 1972, he wrote British theoretical and mathematical evolutionary biologist and geneticist John Maynard Smith. John, I'm down to my last 15p and I can't wait to give it away. By December, he was in the hospital recovering from a collapse. He was pale and feeble with brittle fingernails darkened to black. He told Hamilton that he had sort of encountered Jesus. He had visions and heard Jesus whisper, Give it to everyone who asks of you. He began wandering around the streets of London, looking for the downtrodden, the poor, the homeless. He would say to them, My name is George. How can I help you? 
he would offer to get them a sandwich or give them a little money. Price would give away anything if someone would ask for it. It escalated to the point where he invited five or six homeless people into his house, many of whom were alcoholics or men of a violent nature. These people, of course, took advantage of Price, and Price knew it. That was okay because it meant that he was doing it out of pure selfishness, and that made him happy. Some have concluded that Price was probably experiencing psychotic delusions, paranoia, and hallucinations beyond his visions of Jesus, not to mention depressions exasperated by thyroid hormone deficiency. With the guests in his home becoming a distraction, he would sometimes sleep in his office. And as time went on, every possession in his home was stolen. Price's depression turned worse. He was soon left with nothing and became homeless himself, living on the street. He looked like a skeleton, sick with malnutrition. Both Hamilton and Maynard Smith, the only two people who realized his genius, tried to help but to no avail. There was a point where Price realized that he had to get his life together. After all, he wouldn't be much use to anybody if he was dead. By now he was living in a squat, which is an abandoned or unoccupied area of land or a building. He managed to get a job as a cleaner in a bank and made plans to see a psychiatrist, although he never made it. One day a man who lived in the same squat got up early because he had a job as a security guard at the Israeli consulate. On his way out, he noticed a letter underneath the door, written in English. Unable to read English, he figured it was an eviction notice, as they were living in the abandoned building illegally. He went to find George to read it for him. Knocking on the door to Price's room, there was no answer, but the door was open, so he went in. He noticed that the floor of the room was bloody. He saw George Price drooped over, dressed in his nicest clothes, a pair of scissors in his hand. He had committed suicide by cutting his carotid artery. His funeral was attended by just a few people, 10 or 11. Most of them were the homeless, who were there to show their respect for the man who had given up everything trying to help them. Two other men were there, William Hamilton and John Maynard Smith. George Price is buried in St. Pancras Cemetery in an unmarked grave. Afterwards, Hamilton fought his way into the squat where Price had been staying to collect any papers that Price had. Hamilton wrote about this in his memoirs. Although the house was awaiting demolition, the electricity was still on. It might have been too freezing for George when he was there all alone over Christmas. As I tidied what was worth taking into my suitcase, his dried blood crackled on the linoleum under my shoe. A basically tidy man, he had chosen to die on the floor, not on the bed. This is how his life became dreamlike for me and how his colorful thread in my science and my life ran out. In George's possessions, there was a piece of paper that he had written, Men and women have always yearned for understanding, compassion, forgiveness, and deeds of loving kindness from their fellow men. But often they've been sadly disappointed. And today more than ever, in a world torn by strife and dissension, the crying need is for a real demonstration of love. You see, love would pour the oil of quietness upon the troubled waters of human relationships, heal the ugly wounds of strife and contention, and bring together those separated by hatred, jealousy, and selfishness. People who knew him at the time, you know, in the, in the, in the, 
in the late 60s and early 70s who encountered him often on the streets of London uh, invariably speak about a man who was a wonderful raconteur and, a, and, and just a really, really interesting person to sit on a park bench next to and open your ear to. Uh, you know, Sylvia Stevens, for instance, who was a young American artist at the time living around Tolmer Square, um, George fell in love with her and he would, he would regale her with stories of his own past biography. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack. A little bit before I go, Oren Harmon in his talk at the Harvard Bookstore mentioned that it took time to convince to gain the confidence of Price's daughters to let them see all Price's work so he could write his book. He told a story that I thought amusing. He was walking down the street with one of the sisters when a car drove by. She said, Oh, that's strange. The license plate of the car is 27356. If you divide that number by 56 and subtract 217, that's my phone number. Well, it would seem that George did pass on his genes. He also pointed out that she had mentioned that if she were born today, she probably would have been diagnosed with Asperger's. Her father as well. And now, how about the ending credits? You know, these podcasts on the Psycon Network cost money. Server space is expensive, and we could use your help. Why don't you be one of the good people and visit Psycon.fm and look for the Patreon link at the top. That's Psycon, C-S-I-C-O-N.fm. And, of course, thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, while you're there, you can listen to a few of our other shows. There's plenty of amazing stuff at Psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and leave a few stars. Those really help. And remember, links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 35 years for being my wife of 35 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Don't
just need a coffee with just coffee for coffee with just coffee with just coffee for coffee with just years go by and life's filled with change sometimes your plans get rearranged he's seen it all and he's weathered it too so just wants to have some coffee with you coffee with just coffee for coffee with just coffee with just Coffee, coffee with just Thank you.